Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. location this is the bruce exclusive and here's your host bruce nolan ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Well, folks, football has been played. We saw it with our own eyes. There was tackling and a scoreboard and people wearing matching uniforms and everything. If ever there was a football is back moment, it's this. That was an actual football game. They were keeping score. There were statistics. There was a winner and a loser, kind of, because, you know, preseason doesn't count. But football has been played. And right after football has been played come the football observations. So what we're going to do is we're going to touch on a few of the observations, a few of the narratives that have started to percolate their way around the Bills sphere. Billsian sphere? Billsosphere? Billsosphere. Buffalo sphere? I like Buffalo sphere. Let's go with that one. Buffalo sphere. Around the Buffalo sphere, over the last week, after the Buffalo Bills defeated the Indianapolis Colts in the first week of the preseason. And then we're going to take a break and we're going to come back, as we usually do after a break. And we're going to talk about bias. Because I was doing some light reading not too long ago on a neuroscience study. And a concept that had been making its way around business leadership in regards to the specific types of biases. And I thought to myself, I think this has value for football and fandom, as I historically do. I try and find ways to tie things to football. So we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about quarterbacks and not Josh Allen because he didn't play. We're going to talk about Kyle Allen. And Matt Barkley, last week on this show, I said we might not have thought we were going to have a competition for QB2, but all of a sudden, maybe we do, because Kyle Allen hadn't looked very good in practices from all updates, from all observations, from basically all observers. And Matt Barkley had looked better. Not knock your socks off better, but he had looked better. And then... The preseason game happened, and literally nothing happened that would change. If anything, it started to push further in that direction. 
because ostensibly the third-string quarterback for the Buffalo Bills has outplayed the second-string quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. Based on all observations, based objectively on the preseason game, I don't think how you can make an argument that would actually make sense otherwise. I can't think of how you do that. I do not think the Buffalo Bills are likely to go out and acquire another quarterback. It just doesn't seem like a Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott thing to acquire a quarterback this late in the season when you have Josh Allen as the starter and you don't have him developing. They've talked frequently about how they should have gotten Derek Anderson in sooner, but that was when Josh Allen was a developing quarterback and they wanted veterans around him. That necessity is no longer present. So I don't think that they're going to go out and sign a veteran quarterback. I don't think Carson Wentz is coming in that door. I don't think there's another veteran quarterback out there that's coming in that door. I think really this is a who's the two and who's the three issue. And I know that this is probably unpopular, but I still think it's going to be Kyle Allen as the QB two at this point and Matt Barkley as the QB three on the practice squad. And the reason that is is simply risk allotment. The Buffalo Bills signed Kyle Allen relatively early in free agency. I mean, it wasn't May. It wasn't, you know, May 25th when they signed Kyle Allen to free agency, which means there is a reasonable chance that somebody else would have signed him had they not. Matt Barkley has been hanging out on the Buffalo Bills practice squad for a huge chunk of the last few years. Now, obviously, there was a, a little bit of a stint for the Titans, and then he comes back. But 18, 19, 20, he was with the Buffalo Bills. 21, he bounced around Titans, Panthers, Falcons. And then 22 and 23, he's back with the Bills. I don't know that there's going to be significant appetite out there for Matt Barkley across the NFL. I think that there's a very reasonable chance you can cut him and get him back to the practice squad. I think it's just a risk management move. I don't even think you're necessarily taking the better quarterback because Matt Barkley has played better as your QB too. I think it's simply a risk evaluation move for the Buffalo Bills, which means at this point, regardless of the fact that I do believe Matt Barkley has played better, I still think at this time, time of recording, August 16th, 2023, at this point, if you held a gun to my head and made me decide, I still think it'll be Kyle Allen as the QB2 and Matt Barkley on the practice squad. So it's important to know that it's not always about who's the better player. It should be in an ideal world, but we don't live in an ideal world because we live in an environment where you have competing people for resources. And if there's a higher probability of you keeping both, which you probably want to do, then you're going to take whatever action is necessary to be able to keep both. And the action that is highly likely to be more necessary to keep both is to cut Matt Barkley and sign him back to the practice squad as opposed to the inverse. So that's what I think. And I think it's really important as we talk about discussions at other positions that it's not just about who's better playing offense. It's not just about who's better playing defense. Remember this when we have discussions about wide receivers and linebackers and things like that. We want it to be that simple. Well, this guy's better, but it's not that simple. We wish it was that simple, but it's, it's just not. Speaking of wide receivers, 
Andy Isabella has been the talk of camp. And as we move forward, I even mentioned on Twitter, I said, uh, guys, Andy Isabella was like, good. Like he actually was, it was good. Like I enjoyed watching Andy Isabella run routes. I thought he played well. Now, every single offseason, there's some sort of skill position player, right? Black Shear or any number of wide receivers who have made their way through one Bills drive over the last few years. Not even the last few years, since the beginning of the NFL, there's been players like this. And the thing that I want to talk about when it comes to Andy Isabella is when you start projecting, when you start predicting, it's really important that you note that when a player plays in preseason and with whom they play is far more important than how they play when it comes to prediction. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's not. One of the things that set off all sorts of bells and whistles last year that OJ Howard might be cut, even though they had signed him to a deal that made it look like he wasn't going to get cut as he was playing markedly late in the final preseason game. And I said on this podcast, I was like, I don't know, guys. I did not predict. I didn't like, hey, he's going to get cut. But I was like, oh, guys, this is a little weird. Uh, it was setting up bells and whistles. Alarms were going off. Because qualitatively, we want the person to play well. But when it comes to predictively, when they are playing and with whom they are playing is far more important than how they are playing. If they're playing really, really well at the end of the final preseason game, it doesn't really matter. We saw that from AJ McCarron playing really well in the last part of the preseason game and then traded. Might have gotten cut if he hadn't gotten traded. When you play and with whom you play, like, are you playing with the starters? Are you playing with the backups? Are you playing with the third strings? Are you playing with other guys who we think are probably going to get cut? It's a little bit like looking around you and realizing, oh no, I'm, I, I'm in the bad group. This is not great. We think Bob Smith's not going to make the roster. We think Paul Jones is going to make the roster. And I'm playing with Bob Smith and Paul Jones. Maybe I'm not going to make the roster. So it's really important. I thought Andy Isabella played well. I think one of the meaningful questions is, can he play teams? I'm not talking about returning. I'm talking about gunning. And I don't think the answer is yes. So all of a sudden, the whole, you're going to keep Justin Shorter as wide receiver six, even though he didn't get a target because he plays teams. He can gun. He can cover kicks. He can cover punts. Unless Andy Isabella can do that stuff, then he's got a leg down on wide receiver six. I still think, if you held a gun to my head right now and made me decide, I still think Andy Isabella would be a, a practice squad candidate. Yes, he is subject to waivers because he is a vested veteran. But it is a scenario where if all of a sudden in the second and third preseason game, if you're seeing Andy Isabella get run with Josh Allen, okay, now all the sorts of red flags go off. Who is playing in the second half of the third preseason game? That's my meaningful question. Who is playing in the second half of the third preseason game? And that will help me predict. Now, obviously, what we want to have happen is we want to have the players that we believe are the best players make the roster. And that's based on how we, they play. Our, our opinion of them is based on how they play. 
But when it comes to predicting something, the team's opinion of them, our opinion doesn't really matter. We're trying to predict the team's opinion of them, and the team's opinion of them is primarily determined and evaluated and illuminated, essentially, by when are you playing and with whom are you playing? And I think it's really important that we understand those things as it relates to, specifically, everyone's favorite topic du jour, Andy Isabella. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about the two main topics, backup quarterback and Andy Isabella. And next week, there will be different storylines. We can talk a little bit about middle linebacker, probably, after another one. I really want to see if Terrell Bernard gets his hammy back. And if he does, when he plays and with whom he plays. Because right now, it looks like the job is leaning toward Terrell Dodson. And if Tyrell Dodson is the guy, then, you know, so be it. But I mentioned this when I was on with Sneaky Joe on WGR. Yes, I actually think Dorian Williams played well. But did he play well because he was playing his natural position? He is a run-and-chase linebacker. Any scouting report for Dorian Williams will tell you he was a run-and-chase linebacker. Would he have played that well if you would have played him at Mike? If you would have asked him to stack and shed? If you would have asked him to play into the line of scrimmage a little bit more? If you would have asked him to make the type of coverage reads that you ask a middle linebacker to make? I don't know if he would have played that well or not. We know he played well, but he played well from the backup will position. So I'm happy about how he played because if Matt Milano goes down, man, I, I, you know, he is a big part of the splash plays that are necessary to get offenses in negative down and distance, big splash, negative plays on defense. Those are the ways that you can derail an offensive drive for offenses. It's about getting explosive plays for the defense, it's about stopping explosive plays and getting negatively explosive plays of your own. Sacks are a big part of that. Tackles for loss are a big part of that. Those are the things that you want. So that's also my take on the linebacker position. But we are going to talk about bias now. We are roughly halfway through the episode. This is about when I wanted to do it. And we'll see how long this goes. So I was doing some light reading not too long ago because... I enjoy reading. And I came across an interesting bias model called the seeds bias model. It's a framework that's used to help people understand biases, what causes them and how we interrupt them. It was developed by the neuro leadership Institute with a goal of helping people reprogram their brains. They were trying to help people counter unconscious biases that might be affecting decision-making. You see this used a lot in business. Now, the SEEDS, S-E-E-D-S, is an acronym. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through each one of those letters and we're going to talk a little bit at a high level about what those biases are. It's important to note that there's over 150 different types of biases that have been outlined by this neurological study and this report. This only talks about them on a very, very, very high level and gives examples. Basically, all 150 can fall into one or more of these categories. So if you don't hear, oh, well, what about confirmation? That's a sub-bias of one of the things we're talking about. Well, what about this type of bias? That's a sub-bias. 
So S. S is for similarity bias, which on a broad scope means people like me are better. Obviously, you know exactly where you see this in culture, right? Racism, ageism. This is, these are all types of similarity biases. But in football, it shows up first in simple fan tribalism. Bills fans are better than Dolphins fans. It, like every bias, is simply a mental shortcut. It's created to make us feel like the need for any actual mental work has been alleviated. Biases are created in the brain because the brain is trying to make as quick of a decision as humanly possible that they believe has a chance of being accurate. So they take shortcuts. They want to alleviate any idea that, oh, well, we might have to do work. And we can use a small piece of information to make judgments on a whole. For example, a San Francisco 49ers fan watches Bill's Colts and specifically wants to see how one of their favorite prospects, Osiris Torrance, did. And comes away going, ah, I didn't love the way that he played. That opinion is likely to be minimized by a huge chunk of people simply because that person's not a Bills fan. And Bills fans are better, according to the bias. You have a more positive opinion of person A you don't know versus person B you don't know because person A, who is the Bills fan, is considered by your brain to be in group. And person B, as a 49ers fan, would be out of group. Because of this, the opinion of person A then carries more weight than that of person B. Well, Bruce, person A, a Bills fan, he knows the team and the context, and person B doesn't. It doesn't matter. Context wasn't necessary to opine accurately on how Osiris Torrance played in that preseason game. You don't need to have context to know how he played in that one game. Now, if you're making judgments on the player as a whole five years from now, then yes, a Bills fan is more likely to have more context because they follow the team more closely. But that wasn't what we talked about. But that won't stop somebody from naturally valuing the opinion of someone they consider to be in group as more of the opinion of the person they consider to be out of group. We, the 49ers fan might have been a high school offensive line coach and is probably more equipped to comment on Osiris Torrance's play than the overwhelming majority of Buffalo Bills fans. But yet we do not care. They are not considered to be in group, and as such, their opinions are then minimized. We see this in coaching all the time. The good old boys network. There are constructs like the Rooney Rule, and they're specifically designed in an attempt to break similarity bias in coaching hires. Because if you hire a white head coach, they might be more likely to hire people who look like them. Because people who look like me and people who are like me might intrinsically be believed to be better. Coordinators getting promoted to head coaching position often poach their previous team's position coaches because that person's most recent experience matches their own. Therefore, they believe it must be better. There was an athletic article about Brian Dable, the now New York Giants head coach, former Buffalo Bills coordinator, and how his attempt at actually hiring the best coaches for the job rather than people he just knew, were deemed to be genius. The fact that that article was even necessary is proof that this bias exists. We see it all the time. It's simultaneously hilarious and also kind of sad and also very enlightening. All of these things are true 
because of similarity bias. The first E stands for expedience bias. If it is familiar and if is it easy, then it must be true. This is the most infuriating part of this entire model for me personally, because it gives rise to the idea that wins are a quarterback stat. It's an easy and a lazy shortcut that you as a consumer are bombarded with from all angles at all times when you are ingesting content. Despite a litany of better ways to evaluate quarterback play, it is easier and quicker to just use wins and losses and call it a day. Accuracy be damned. Expedience bias also leads to coaches and fans hanging on to old opinions long past their expiration date. You see this all the time from national media pundits or national commenters. And we go, what the heck? This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Josh Allen is a reckless and inefficient quarterback. That hasn't been a true statement since the beginning of 2020. But if you're a Cleveland Browns fan and you haven't watched Josh Allen play much since you were hoping your team wouldn't select him first overall in 2018, you will use your evaluation of him from half a decade ago to make judgments on him now. Because that's easier, and that's the data you are most familiar with. You skip over a meaningful sample size of recent data in favor of a more familiar sample size of data from a long time ago. But that doesn't just apply to fans. We talk about this all the time. First round NFL draft picks have a pedigree, and they continually get more chances to prove their worth in the league than other players. Why? Because teams can remember their pre-draft evaluation of the player and place much more weight on that than the data that has been collected in the years since that initial prospect evaluation. Well, I remember thinking really highly of him. Well, yeah, but he's been in the league for five years and he's shown he really can't play. Well, it's easier to just go back to the thing you had on him five years ago. A very wise man told me one time, he said, Bruce, life is millions of binary choices between what is right and what is easy. And if it's easy, it might not be right. And if it's right, it might not be easy. This is that in a nutshell, expedience bias. If it's familiar and it's easy, and I'll add this, if it's quick, then it must be true. The second E is experience bias. My truth is the right one. This is the argument I get into with more than a few people on frequent occasions. The dreaded eye test rears its ugly head here. Eye tests are important. I have historically referred to experience bias as intellectual arrogance, and it shows up in football evaluation constantly. Well, Jerry Hughes is terrible. Well, Jerry Hughes has, you know, 47 pressures. I don't care. He's terrible. The reason I have historically valued metrics as a check is because I'm humble enough to know that my eyes lie to me all the time. They absolutely do. We put way too much faith in our eyes. Experience bias tells you that the way you have perceived the world is objective truth. But we watch a football game once through on the television while maybe inebriated from the broadcast angle. Or even better, we watch it live from the upper deck. And then we get done and we call in to a radio show 
or we start firing off tweets as if we're 100% sure how every single player played. The amount of confidence we have in our takes after that is way too high. You were really far away and probably had a lot of beers. But we're really, really sure. But if you slow down your brain, you'll realize that you don't actually know how many snaps that player played. You don't know where they were lining up on the field the majority of the time, and your opinions on their entire game have been heavily influenced by the few times they flashed on the broadcast or had their name called on the loudspeaker and were brought up by the announcers. I cannot tell you how many times I've got done with a game, had an opinion, had to kind of bite my tongue a little bit, went back, watched the tape, slowed it down, pulled up the advanced metrics, started looking for stuff and realized I was wrong. There is a level of humility that comes along with needing to observe things like this. Well, Bruce, the Bills' offensive line pass blocking was abysmal last year. No, it really wasn't abysmal. You're being overly influenced by the last thing you saw against the Cincinnati Bengals. You're ignoring most of the year. And there's a lot of advanced metrics that say they, were, they weren't great pass blocking, but they weren't abysmal. I don't care what you say. I know what I saw. Do you really? We're just way too sure. That kind of, that kind of I am 100% sure in what I saw this one time when I was screaming at my television, that is way too strong for me. It's just way too strong. Good for you you're probably going to be wrong more often than you think. My favorite part is when we do this for players who were in the defensive secondary. In many cases, they're not even on the screen on the broadcast view. And you might only see them if they are in proximity to a targeted player's location. The idea that you can be so incredibly sure about how a player played in these situations is basically insane. But this shows up over the course of a season in addition to inside a specific game. Every ranking or every tiering of quarterbacks you've ever seen involves people arguing for a player that they've watched every snap of and against a player they may have caught a time or two on a primetime game while they were less focused. While you were staring at your phone and you had Sunday Night Football on, you caught some of Joe Burrow, but you watched every snap of Josh Allen. This is the reason why knowledge and uses of metrics is so important because it can force us to shake loose from that intellectual arrogance. I think Justin Herbert is the best quarterback in the league, but all this stuff is telling me he might not be. Maybe I should go back and look. Nope. Instead, we just go, my opinion is amazing. I'm a Chargers fan. I know what's best and everything that says counter to what I believe is garbage. Metrics are designed to kind of shake us up a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. You should be questioning that. Question it all the time. Constantly question it. And be confronted with data because it can help you recognize that the way we perceive football is not an objective truth. And it's influenced by our emotional state, our history, and our preferences. If you have a specific leaning toward a specific type of player, you are naturally going to be inclined to like that player more. Even though stylistically, that might not actually provide a better product. It's just a more preferable product in your opinion.
or the likability of a player can be impacting you. We see this with Josh Allen, Deshaun Watson, players like that. If you like the player, you're going to push him up. If you don't like the player, you'll drive him down. You might be doing it subconsciously. You might be doing it very consciously. But it's not objective truth. This is the same thing that teams do. They embrace analytics in part because it helps them make decisions without relying on their gut. They recognize that their gut is influenced by a lot of factors that may or may not be objectively true. And that having more and better data can help them make better decisions. I am not saying ignore your eyes. I'm saying constantly question what you're seeing. I'm not saying ignore your gut. I'm saying constantly question your gut. Do it. Well, you should never question your gut. Your gut, no, it doesn't. Come on. Always go with your gut. Really? Your gut's never steered you wrong. Really? I find that very hard to believe. Congratulations on your perfect gut. But that's not how human beings work. We are biased. We are influenced by all sorts of tons of factors in any given time. And it's important we have checks and balances against those things. D is for distance bias. Closer is better. The Neural Leadership Institute provides this as an example of distance bias. The endowment effect. It's our tendency to value things more if we own them than if we do not. For example, someone may say that she is willing to pay a dollar for a neutral object, such as a bottle of water. However, if you give her a bottle of water, endow her with it, and ask her how much she would be willing to accept as payment that she now owns, she might say $2. She was willing to buy it for a dollar, but she's only willing to give it up for $2. You value the things that you own more than the things that you don't. This factor is weird because it can either apply directly to the way that fans feel about their own players or the absolute opposite can occur. I'll give you a great example. A fan might value a player that they like more highly than an equivalent player on another team because closer is better. So Bob, who is a B-level player on my team, is more valuable than Frank, who's a B-level player on another team because Bob is closest to me. Fans and teams are often on board with investing more to keep their own players that they like than an equivalent or even potentially better player with whom there is more distance. This is why it's important to make this caveat. Why did I say that they like? Because the opposite can be true. We are seeing this with Dane Jackson. Dane Jackson is not a bad player. He is not a bad player. There is... No way you can look at this objectively and think Dane Jackson is a bad player. He's an adequate player. He's fine. But there is a horrible push against Dane Jackson from a lot of people in Bill's Mafia. But if an equivalent player on another team, you'd be okay with. So really the best way to think about this is you have a bias, either it's positive or it's negative, toward it being close to you. You've heard of the phrase, you are too close to the situation to look at it objectively. That's what this means. It can mean it in the positive way, but it can also mean it in the negative way. We saw this with Jerry Hughes a lot when he was here. Jerry Hughes was a good player when he was here. Dane Jackson is a fine, adequate player. Now, when you draft a player like Kyir Elam, you hope you're getting better than that. You want better than adequate play. You want better than fine play. And that's one of the things that can influence your opinion of the player in front of them. 
a player who would be considered a league average starter on any other team might be vilified and an object for intense fan criticism disproportionate to their play due to a variety of factors like draft status and the opinion of the player behind him on the depth chart. If you think Kair Elam is the second best corner on this team, you are naturally more inclined to dislike Dane Jackson because Dane Jackson's the one standing in the way of that thing that you think should happen happening. You're too close to it to see it objectively. Distance bias. So closer is better, or in this case, closer is worse. The much more common manifestation of this bias is simply believing that your team is a better and more morally upstanding organization because they are your team. People get very uncomfortable when you tell them this. In fact, people get very uncomfortable when you talk to them about bias in general. Nobody wants to believe they're biased, even though everyone is, myself included. You do your best to combat it, but the first step is acknowledging that there is a presence of bias. People get big mad when you talk to them about bias. Everyone wants to believe that they are the arbiter of truth and that everything that comes out of their mouth and everything that goes into their brain is objectively true. Regardless of the fact that that's not true for literally anyone ever. But we have this happen with our team all the time. Well, the Buffalo Bills are an intrinsically more moral entity that is worthy of fandom because you're emotionally tied to them. When Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk, commented that he believed the Bills and running back Naheem Hines who suffered an ACL injury after the jet ski accident, were, quote, at odds regarding the financial fallout from the incident. Go check the comments. Fans of the teams that were not the Bills had very different reactions from fans of the team that was the Bills. Comments of the Bills being, quote, cheap or shady on social media almost exclusively came from fans of other teams because their team would never do that. Only the Bills would because the Bills are the bad guys. Whereas the predictions that the Bills would pay Hines and resolve the situation in a way befitting an upstanding and decent organization, those came almost exclusively from members of Bills Mafia. People believe that the team that is closest to them is the best. This is the definition of fandom, right? It's, it's more than just rooting for a team. Fandom and rooting interest are different phrases. I have a rooting interest in the Buffalo Bills. I do not believe that the Buffalo Bills are intrinsically a more moral organization above all else. I don't think so. I do believe that there are probably less moral organizations. We just finished turning over the ownership of one of them with the Washington Commanders. But this idea that my team, the team that I root for, is intrinsically the most moral intrinsically the best organizationally and is stocked and staffed only by upstanding moral people is an example of distance bias. If it's closer to me, then it must be better. And the final letter of this SEEDS acronym is safety bias, the S at the end. This is safe is preferable to good. The amount of brain space that is tied up in preventing loss is always more significant than the amount of brain space devoted to creating gain. Neurologically speaking, this makes sense. The human body would like to survive, and as such, the amount of brain function that is tied up into not dying is more important and takes priority over the amount of brain that we use when it comes to 
succeeding. It's more important for us to not fail than it is for us to succeed. Because of this, a basic tenet of humanity is loss aversion. On average, if you tell a person that you will flip a coin and that tails will result in that person losing $10,000, they will, on average, need to be assured $20,000 if it comes up heads in order for them to agree to have you flip the coin and expose themselves to the results. In other words, losing $10,000 feels more negative then gaining $10,000 feels positive. The risk aversion shows up more in coaching than it does in fandom because fans don't have to lose their jobs as part of potential negative outcomes. A great example of this, a team that it punts late in the fourth quarter when they're down multiple scores. At that point, the idea that the team is trying to win has gone completely out the window. They are not trying to win. They are trying to lose by less. And they're hopeful that if they punt the ball away, the other team will utilize clock-killing plays with less likelihood of scoring so the final score won't look as bad. Well, if we turn the ball over and downs in our own territory, we might lose by more. Yeah, if you punt it away, you're definitely going to lose. The team might have a win probability of 10% at the time of the punt, but their behavior is that of a team that has a 0% chance of winning because they place more value on the downside of losing by more than they do on the upside, however small, of winning. Fourth down aggression decisions in the NFL have consistently lagged behind win probability models due to this reason. If you have a job, your first priority is keeping that job. And the human brain is wired to believe that not making a mistake is a much better way to keep your job than doing something great regardless of whether or not that's actually true. So we did it. We talked about seeds. So two weeks ago, we talked about tangentially football stuff. Last week, we talked about 100% football stuff. This week, we're talking about tangentially football stuff. You know, as stuff comes, we'll talk about it. We're going to continue to do weird things on this podcast because it needs to be interesting for me to do it. And so we consume our football content. Sometimes we allow our biases to go unchecked and quite frankly, unacknowledged. We react the same way every year. We finish off a season of football. We go through an off season, rinse and repeat every year. But maybe, just maybe, if we can see how our brain is fundamentally wired to be biased, we can combat it as much as possible. And we can lead ourselves to our more truthful state of football consumption or we could not and that's the way the cookie crumbles i'm bruce nolan buffalo rumblings